You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. So could we all stand to our feet and just welcome Pastor Dave as he comes to bring the word one more time? I appreciate it. Love you too. All right. You can be seated. Everybody get a nap this afternoon? I was raised on naps. Sundays, it was mandatory. You didn't have a choice. I hated it. Isn't it interesting how what punishments were as children, it's goals as adults. It's like, I, you know, I want to be, I want to go to my room. I want to take a nap. So anyway, uh, man, I appreciate Pastor Drew's kind words and appreciate this house and all you guys are doing. Let's jump into the word here. Uh, we've got a few minutes and I want to just share a few things with you and then we're going to go into some more worship and some ministry time. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 25, uh, verse 14. Matthew 25. What I want to share with you is what I believe is a pattern in the kingdom. You know, God operates by patterns. Moses said, show me your ways, O Lord. David prayed the same thing. I want to say it was in Psalm 25. He said, show me your ways. In other words, there are ways or patterns by which God operates. And if we can understand the patterns by which he operates, we can get in the way. I can intercept him if I know his ways. So there is, a, there is a, a level of predictability about God when you know his ways. There are, there's ways in which God operates. But Jesus talked about the mysteries of the kingdom, the ways in which he operates his dominion. And so I believe this is one of those, Matthew 25. Now, uh, he says in verse 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. It will be. Now, what is he talking about? If you go to the first part of this passage in chapter one, it says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Well, if you go into the previous chapter, he's saying at the end of the age or in the, the, the end times. Now, we know from scripture that the end times began in Acts chapter two. Because when the spirit was poured out, Peter stood up and he said, this is that which was said in the last days I will pour out of my spirit. So he said, Pentecost was the last day. So we're, we're a ways down in the last days. So this applies to us, okay? And so this is a pattern. But I would propose to you that this pattern increases and it's, uh, it's uh, the rapid rate in which it takes place in our life the closer we get to the end of the age. So let's look at it. He says, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to them his property. Now, most of the time, I think people look at this passage and look, like, look at it like I always did. I always looked at this passage as an overarching uh, narrative of history that the master came, Jesus, imparted gifts to his church. He went back to heaven and history goes on and one day he will return and we'll give an account. And there is a loose application of that, but that's not what he's talking about. Because he was talking about something relevant to the disciples that were standing there. What he's talking about is how the master will visit us. God visits us, imparts something to us, and then he leaves us to steward what he gave us, and then he returns to settle accounts. And this is the way of the kingdom. In our lives, God will come to us, he'll give something of himself to us, and then he imparts and departs. There are there are ebbs and flows in our walk with God, and that is an important thing. I know back in uh, 2008, we had a, well, 2007, I got a word from this prophet guy out of, uh, he was in our state, and he ended up at IHOP, and he, he gave me this weird word. He said, 
Revival is coming to Heartland. That's the church I pastor. He said, it's not a matter of if, it's, it's when, and it's going to be soon. But the Lord says he will add to that the desert and the theology that comes from when God is not felt. I'm thinking, that's not real exciting. I don't even want that word. I, I like the first part, but the second part? That just sounded weird to me, and I, I just saved it on my hard drive like I usually do and forgot about it. Didn't find it again for a couple of years. Well, within a matter of months, we had this revival hit our church, and, and uh, there was this outpouring of the Spirit. It was night after night of services and many healings and then people getting saved, and it was glorious, and it was awesome, and it was exhausting. <laughs> but after a few months, as that began to lift, I began to think, Lord, did I grieve you? Lord, did I do something wrong? And the Lord took me into this passage. And I began to teach on desert theology. And I'd forgotten about the word, this young prophetic guy. Now I consider him prophetic. At the time, I just thought he was strange. Now I have to repent and validate his prophetic gift because he read it exactly right. So let's look at what it says. For there was, it was like a man going on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. So God will impart things to us according to our own ability. But here's the catch. See, we, we have a tendency to compare ourselves with others and feel diminished if we don't get what others get. But the fact is, God gives us what we can handle, and then we can steward that, and we can multiply the thing he gives us. We can multiply it, or we can waste it. And that's the key that we need to take away tonight. We need to understand, what do we do when God touches us? When the Lord comes. So it goes on to say that he went away. He, he, uh, he who had five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But the one who had received one talent went out, dug it a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, and saying, Master, look what I've done. I've, I've produced five more with what you've given me. Now, this, this is a sobering phrase in here. It says, after a long time, the master came to settle accounts with them. God is one that never wants outstanding accounts. He's always going to circle back around, and he wants us to settle accounts. He wants us to be like that. We don't want any outstanding accounts with others. That has to do with forgiveness as well as finances. We need to take care of our debts, and we need to deal with these things and close those things. But the Father will come and settle accounts. And so what we have here is a, a, a pattern in the kingdom. It was visitation. The master called his servants unto him. There are seasons of visitation in the church. And then there was impartation. He gave something of himself to them. You cannot be in the presence of God without picking something up. Whether you know it or not, when you are in the presence of God, something is being imparted to you. And like these servants, some of them appreciated what they got and others looked at it as a burden. And so their hard attitude determined how they would respond to what was given to them and actually would qualify or disqualify them for the next visitation, as we see it as he goes on in this passage. So there was a visitation, there was impartation, he imparted and departed, and so he gave something of himself and then he withdrew his presence. And what they did in that interim time between visitations 
was crucial. It was going to qualify or disqualify them. It's what we do with what God gives to us in his presence that will, will determine what he can do with us in the future. You can put it this way. What, uh, you know, what we do with in his absence, what he gave us in his presence will determine our future. And so how we steward when we have that uh, experience where God is not felt, what that prophet told me. There's, there are seasons where God is not felt in our life. And what you do with what he did in your life in those seasons are very, very crucial. And it will determine, it, it, it's driven by two things. We'll see that by the responses of these servants. So the master calls him into account. The, the guy comes in, the guy that had five talents, he comes in and he said, he said, master, you entrusted me. Look what I did with what you gave me. Listen to the language he's using. Out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth spoke. And he's saying, Master, there was an entrustment. You believed in me. And because you believed in me, I believed in me. And I went out and I put it to work and I multiplied in your absence what you gave me in your presence. And then we see this mutual exchange of affection between the master and the servant. The the master says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he's given more. He's promoted So then we see the guy with the three talents. He comes in, same thing, same language. Master, you entrusted me. You believed in me. And look what I did. I I took what you gave me and I went out. I believed your faith in me made me believe in myself and I went out and I invested this. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he was given more. And then we have the third servant. The one who was given one. Listen to what he says to the master. So totally different from the language of the other two. He said, I knew you were a hard taskmaster who reaps where you do not sow and harvests where you cast no seed. He insulted the master. And in in essence, what he was saying, because this is clearly an indication of the servants of God standing before God, and he's saying, God, you required things of me you never gave me the power to do. You required holiness and never gave me the grace to pull it off. You wanted me to do these things, all these mandates in Scripture, and you never graced me to do these things. And he gets the same response. The, The response of the servant determined the response of the master. Faith will receive grace. And unbelief, which is what this man had, received a rebuke. He said, you wicked, lazy servant. Should you not have at least put it on loan at the bank? In essence, he's saying, let someone else invest what I gave you. I mean, an example of that would be God, I, 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 man, I was in church this morning and I got touched by you, but I just don't have the faith to step out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put myself under a leader and I'm going to let him tell me how to use that gift. I'm going to let that leader, I'm going to let her say, this is how you need to invest it. I'm going to put my, my gift under them and I'm going to invest it in them because they know what to do with it. He's saying, if you didn't know what to do with it, couldn't you have put it on loan at the bank? But instead he buried it. And what's very clear from their interaction was their view of the master determined their view of themselves. 
the most important thing about you is your theology. Your answer to the question, what is God like? A.W. Tozer wrote a book, Knowledge of the Holy. And if you, if you buy the book, just the preface, I think, of the book is worth the price of the book. And he goes into this. He said, if I could determine your answer to the question, what, what is God like, I could determine your future. And he said, if I could ask the corporate church, what is your corporate view of God? I could, I could accurately prophesy the future of that church. Because your theology is the most important thing about you. And everything we do flows from our theology. How we see God will determine everything about us. So the most important thing about you, as a matter of fact, sin entered the world because of a wrong view of God. The serpent slithered up to Eve and he said, did God really say he questioned God's word? And interestingly enough, she said, yeah, he did. And then she added a little to it. We have that tendency. God said not to even touch it. God didn't say that. I'm not saying it was a good idea to go up there and start rubbing that fruit, but it's, um, God didn't say that. And so then the enemy went for the jugular. He said, the reason God said it is because he's trying to keep the good stuff, the God stuff to himself. He can't be trusted. If you want the good stuff, if you want to be taken care of, you better take matters into your own hands. She bought into a lie about God, a satanic defamation of God's character. And the fact is, we as human beings have struggled with that lie ever since. There's still echoes of Eden in the human soul. And we struggle to trust God. And so our walk with God is an ongoing process of God proving himself to us and us growing our faith in his great faithfulness. So the most important thing about you is your answer to the question, what is God like? The second most important thing about you is your answer to the question, who are you? Your theology and your identity. And if you look at the fall of man, it wasn't just a lie that Adam and Eve believed about God. There was a secondary, maybe even more subtle lie that they believed about themselves. And that lie sounded like this. You're not good enough the way you are. Eve, you need to eat some fruit, do some push-ups, get on the treadmill, girl. Do something to make yourself better. But the fact is, she could walk right into God's presence the way she was. But she believed a lie about God and a lie about herself. And the cross of Jesus Christ that reconciles us to God ultimately needs to reconcile us to ourselves. There are a lot of believers out there that walk with God but still reject themselves. And they can't fulfill the call of God on their life because they're living with self-rejection. They're embarrassed to arrive in the package that they arrive in. If you don't accept you, you've got a problem because you arrive in you everywhere you go. You bring you with you. And so when you arrive, you're uncomfortable and you're going to try to show up as something else. But God didn't anoint the something else. He anoints the you that you are. A number of years ago, we used to host a house of prayer in our church. And uh, it was, there was, the back part of our building at the time was the house of prayer. And I was all alone back there on a Thursday morning just praying. And uh, the Lord spoke to me very clearly. and was very uncomfortable. This is what he said. He said, many of my children wear the mantle that I have for them 
as an ill-fitting garment. He said, but what you need to understand is I am the master tailor. I sew it perfectly to your frame. But then he added this. He said, but I don't sew it to the stooped over man of shame that still identifies with his past. I sew it to the one who stands confident and erect in my presence. And I looked around the room. I knew the leader he was talking to. I was the only one there. (laughs) Years ago, our board, back when we wore suits, our board for uh, pastor appreciation gave me a coupon for two suits. So I bought one for Marion and one for Barion. And uh, I don't don't remember what the other one was, but I got a black suit. It really was for Marion and Barion. And uh, man, it was a nice suit. It was, you know, back in the four buttons, you know, I looked like an NBA star, you know, it looked good. And I stood there and they, they tailored it because you can make a cheap suit look good if you get it tailored. I got that thing tailored and it looked good. The problem is I stood straight and tall in the mirror and I don't stand straight and tall. I slunch over. I, I remember when I was a little kid, the cool kids slouched. So I remember consciously slouching and I've never overcome it. So I would wear that suit and I would try to stand straight and as soon as I relaxed, it would pop out like a little pixie dress. I hated that suit. (laughs) There was an advertisement you say, the most expensive suit you ever have is the one you never wore. That was an expensive suit. I hated that suit because it wasn't fit to the way I stood. And the Lord used that terminology because he knows I slouch and I had a suit I don't wear. The fact is, God anoints us to be the person we're called to be. And we've got to embrace, and we've got to come into self-acceptance if we're able to walk in the anointing that God has for our life. We've got to be reconciled to ourselves. And so, the most important thing about us, you can see this with the disciples in Matthew 16. Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi, and uh, there's a whole lot in that passage. He takes them to this cave where it's called the mouth of hell itself. There'd been human sacrifices there. There was all kinds of occult history. And he went out of his way on a long journey to take his disciples there. And then he says, I will, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell. He was standing in front of the mouth of this, ca- this cavern that was known as the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was making a declaration. And then he said to his disciples, he said, who do you say that I am? You see, he was getting down to the real nitty gritty. What? The most important thing about us. And I'm not talking about the Sunday school answer, the one we give that we know we're supposed to give. I'm talking about the, the, the answer you give in your heart of hearts when you're in the trial, when things aren't going the way you wish they were. Who do you say that he is? That will be the foundation from which you live. And Peter, having the big mouth, he spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, really, he he said, who do people say that I am? And they gave a couple of uh, different answers. And he said, no, I want to know who you say. Because it doesn't matter what the church says. Sometimes people come to me and say, pastor, what do we believe about? And it always strikes me. I thought, if I have to tell you what you believe, you're in trouble. (laughs) I don't know what you believe. I know what I believe. And I, I, I can tell you why I believe it, but you better think for yourself. So Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, you have not come to this on your own, but the Father has shown you this. And the very next thing out of Jesus' mouth is he begins to define who Peter is. 
Because our theology and our identity will determine how we steward the things of God. You can be touched by God around the altars. You can have a baptism in the Holy Spirit and fresh encounters with the Lord. But if you don't deal with those lies that you believe, it will sabotage your ability to walk in that. You won't be able to walk in those things. I believe Jesus was prophetically calling Peter into his, his future. When he said, on this rock, I believe he was, he was referring to Peter's declaration. I believe evangelicals have it right. I do believe that he was referring to the mouth of that cave and that rock they were standing on because it was history, that that was the invasion of hell on that rock. But I also believe he was speaking about the apostolic call in Peter's life. In Ephesians, it says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And I believe he was speaking to that stone in Peter's life. He said, you are Peter, little rock, but upon this big rock. And he was calling him into his future. Graham Cook, he's a well-known prophet teacher. And he has this great teaching I heard one time. He said, prophecy is simply God saying, I want to introduce you to someone. And he introduces the future you to the present you says, I want to introduce you to you in the future. And after you get that word, he will begin to relate with you out of your future to pull you into it. And often the first time God begins to speak to you about who you really are, it may be in the form of a prophetic word, it may be these inclinations, you may see things in the word. Often the first response of us as human beings is to argue. And I would propose to you that that is one of the primary purposes, one of the primary initial purposes of prophecy. He's trying to kick those internal disqualifications we've bought into and get them to the surface so he can confront those things. Often, God will begin to speak to you about something and you'll, you know, it's like Gideon argued with the Lord when the angel of the Lord said, you mighty man of valor. He's hiding and he argues with the Lord. Sarah, she laughed. Mary was bewildered. I mean, these are hardly expressions of faith. But that was the initial purpose. The word of the Lord comes to us to kick those internal disqualifications, those lies we've believed. He wants to get them to the surface and confront those things because God is very, very interested in how you view yourself. It really does matter. True humility is agreeing with God. Nothing more, nothing less. That we come into agreement with what he says about us. And if you find yourself talking about yourself in ways you wouldn't talk about someone else, then you've got a problem. And God wants to address that thing. He wants to confront that because it will sabotage how you steward what God does in your life. We're going to go into worship, into worship in a few moments. And the Spirit of God's going to begin to move in our midst and He's going to begin to minister to our hearts. And what we need to do is we need to lean in and say, God, I want you to address my identity. And Lord, help me to come into alignment with what you say about me. Lord, I, I want you to define me. I've got a friend, a guy named Dan Moeller. He, he has some great one-liners. And he says that he is the potter, I am the clay. He's the only one who is allowed to shape me. I love that. That nobody else gets to set my value but him. Life is good when I allow that to happen and it's not so good when I don't. 
to allow the Lord to shape us. And often I will just have to mentally get myself, even before I preach, I go into, I was doing it tonight during worship, just reminding myself, Lord, this is who I am. This is who you've called me to be. This is what you've called me to do. I can't afford to step in the pulpit with a different identity. I need to wear the mantle that he has for me because that mantle carries the power to deal with the obstacles in my destiny and my assignment. It's the thing that can fulfill the assignment on my life. I will face those obstacles whether I wear the mantle or not. But I need to come into agreement to do so. And so we're going to ask the Lord to speak to us about who we really are. And I believe the Lord wants to do some heart work tonight. He wants to talk to us about who he is, deal with our theology, and deal with our identity. Who is he and who are you? You could put it this way. The most important question you will ever answer is the question from God, who do you say that I am? And the most important question you will ever ask is when you ask God the same question, and who do you say that I am? And let him define you. I think it's a, really health, a real healthy practice to just get ourselves quiet before the Lord and just to begin to write down what comes into our mind when we ask that question. Some of you tonight have some diseased thoughts about yourself. They come from your experiences. The enemy recognized the assignment on your life very early on, and he tried to sabotage it by the words of others. And there's been some other potters in your life that have shaped you and tried to define who you are. But it's time to break with those lies tonight. Let's let God define who we are. You know, the wonderful thing is that God loves to take the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. We don't have to impress him. He's already really impressed with his handiwork. But he wants to minister to those things. I really do believe that the greatest revival in human history is on the horizon. And with that move of God is going to come powerful visitations of the Spirit. There's going to be powerful impartations of gifts. It's an amazing thing to me as I read revival history and I watch revival history. And I've seen very quiet, timid, normal people hit by the power of God and they are changed into lions that become world changers and are launched into the earth. It's an amazing thing. But between that impartation and them fulfilling that destiny, their identity and their theology have to be edited. We've got to see God for who he is and see ourselves for who we are. Amen? I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's just put our hands up for the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I believe one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is to cause us to cry, Abba, Father. He's called the Spirit of Sonship to define us as sons. Even Jesus needed to hear from the Father, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. If he needed that, how much more do you and I need it? So Holy Spirit, we just invite you tonight. And Lord, we invite you to do your work. 
Lord, your word says that you come to shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. Lord, I ask that you would release the love of God in here tonight. And Lord, that that love would begin to seep to the roots of our identity. Lord, that it would redefine who we are. In Jesus' name. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.